John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Last week, we spent our time looking at a passage in John chapter 5 that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ as the creator, as the sustainer, as the Lord over all. Apparently, my microphone is not working. So let me get the bug back in my face. Pause just for a second. We looked at John chapter 5. We studied Christ as exalted above all. Today and next week, Lord willing, my intention is for us to consider now what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit, who is our great comforter. Jesus is our great Savior. The Holy Spirit is our great comforter. And our text today is John chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 26, which come right in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples on the night he is betrayed and arrested. He will soon be crucified, and he spends his final hours teaching his beloved disciples what is about to happen and what it means for them. And he is comforting them with great and precious promises. Yes, in the midst of telling them that he is about to die and life is about to get a little bit harder for them, he is giving them incredible comfort. But as we might expect, as Jesus explains to them that he is about to die, the disciples are understandably greatly troubled. Their life is about to get flipped upside down. They are confused. They may even be disoriented because what Jesus is saying is shattering their expectations. What they had expected their Messiah to look like. If what Jesus has to say to them is true, and it is, then the disciples probably feel like the last three years of their life may have been a waste. And that it's amounting to nothing. You see, they had left everything to follow him. They had set their hopes on this one that they believed was the Christ. And now he is leaving. What now? No doubt there is a certain sense of hopelessness and concern and helplessness that has begun to overwhelm these disciples as they feel their lives crashing down around them. And let's not let this story be something that is in the distant past, because I suspect many, if not most of you, have had a similar feeling. As you have tried to live for Christ in a sinful world, no doubt you have wondered, is it worth it? What will be the outcome of this? What Jesus has to say to his nervous and grief-stricken disciples in John 14 is all meant for their comfort, for their encouragement, and not for theirs only, but also for all who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus begins chapter 14 with these words, Let not your hearts be troubled. Only a sovereign God can say that on the eve 
of such a terrible moment in history. And what he says after this is one of the most beautiful and powerful sections in all of Scripture. It is full of comfort, not just wishful thinking, but comfort that is rooted in the reality of who God is and what he is planning to do. And he gives some wonderful promises to those who follow him. So our text for today is John 14, verses 15 and following, but I want us to go back to the beginning of the chapter. And I want us to get a running start into that text by looking at what Jesus has to say, these words of comfort to his troubled disciples on that fateful night. And listen to how he settles the hearts of his precious children. So look with me at John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, he will, and, and we will come into him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And we'll stop there. In verses 1 through 14 of this chapter, Jesus began his words of comfort by reassuring his disciples that they will be with him again. What a marvelous promise that is. That though he is going away, his disciples will be with him where he is forever that he has indeed gone away to prepare a place. And then Jesus reminds these disciples that they actually know more about God than they realize. They feel like they're getting left alone. But he says, you know more than you realize. You just haven't put all the pieces together, but it's going to come. And what Jesus is doing with these disciples is turning their gaze and, and focusing it more and more on who he is and what he has promised to do. It is so easy as we navigate life in a world that is sinful and broken to get caught up in everything that we see around us and to take our gaze off of the Lord Jesus Christ and what his disciples needed in that moment. And what we need in this moment is to reset our gaze on who Jesus is. And remember that in all things, he is in control, that he knows what he is doing, and that he has a perfect plan, even when we feel like the train has run off the tracks. And in all of this, his people find hope and comfort. And in all of this, Jesus also promises that he will complete what he has begun that he will continue his work through his disciples. And that he will provide for every need along the way. And so what he shows is that every moment of their lives, from beginning to end, they are safely in the hands of Almighty God, even if they can't see him with their eyes. No, the wheels are not coming off. Everything that is about to happen, including the death of Jesus Christ, as was prayed this morning, is not an accident. He was not just in the wrong place at the wrong time. This was exactly according to God's plan. And then, at the end of chapter 16, Jesus finishes his discourse in verse 33 by saying, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world.
And now as we look at verses 15 through 26, Jesus continues to encourage and comfort his disciples by teaching them what's going to happen when he goes away. When he departs, that is not a mistake. That is according to God's plan. But what is going to happen when he does depart? As he departs from their presence physically, he will still be with them and his power will not leave them. But in fact, his power and his presence will, will actually take on a greater significance, a greater fulfillment, a greater and fuller dynamic. So Jesus had spent already a, a bunch of time, a bunch of, of moments and, and many different different opportunities with his disciples to teach them about himself and about the Father and about his relationship with God the Father. But now in this passage, he introduces them to the role of the Holy Spirit in their lives. These verses introduce us to the, the Holy Spirit and to the ministry that he has among God's people. And these verses give us some of the greatest pictures of the Trinity. The relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and what their work is together in the lives of God's people. Through the Holy Spirit, we are brought into union and fellowship with all of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, whenever we come to a discussion of the Holy Spirit, we have to be very careful. Because there is all manner of misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the Holy Spirit out there. Ours is not an age of facts. Ours is not an age of truth and knowledge. Ours is an age of personal, subjective experiences and feelings. Is it not? And that is true even when it comes to religion, and that has been true all the way out, down throughout history. That is nothing new. Pagan religions throughout history have sought to find God through various experiences and emotions and, and feelings and all sorts of different rituals and things like that, trying to conjure up an experience with God. But unfortunately, that has often been true even within evangelical circles today. I have seen churches who now call their worship services worship experiences. Which are geared toward helping ex people experience this euphoric presence of God at that time and in that place and under those circumstances. And the reality is, many popular musicians, Christian musicians today, which by the way is where most people seem to get their theology, Shouldn't be, but that is. Um, although music is an incredibly powerful teaching tool. But I've even read books written by popular Christian musicians who operate on the idea that music is something that can enhance or in effect conjure up the Holy Spirit's presence. And they talk about it in those terms. I was doing such and such a concert and it was just going on like normal until this point it seemed the Holy Spirit really came down. And it usually coincides with the emotional pull of the music that they happen to be playing at that moment. 
It's a very dangerous way of thinking, by the way, and it is very subtle. And it tends to pull us away from our understanding of the Word of God as it has been revealed into something more subjective. We must be careful. Because somehow, many have bought into this idea that we must find a way to feel the Spirit's presence or to create some sense of the Spirit's presence with us at certain times. But the reality is, according to Scripture, the presence of God among His people does not ebb and flow according to our feelings and according to our circumstances. It is constant. It is unchanging. And it exists in the life of everyone who belongs to Christ. Anyone who is in Christ has constant fellowship and eternal communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever and at all times. Now, if that's true, then that means that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son is not a matter of spectacular signs. As if God is present at some moments and not at others. We may easily think that the signs of God's presence among us are the extraordinary events, the miracles, the revivals that break out, and certainly those things may be evidence of the Spirit's work among us in a unique way, but that is not evidence that He was not with us before. And in some even more sinister and, I dare say, blasphemous ways, some tend to equate the presence of the Holy Spirit with all manner of physical expressions like rolling on the floor and running around the room and things like that. Just think of what commonly comes to mind when someone says a phrase like, he's got the Holy Spirit in our culture. So, just like with everything else, we must be careful here. We need to be precise in our thinking and in our speaking about the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that He is a person. He's not a force. We don't close our eyes and wave our hands in a certain motion and poof, there He is. He is a person. And He is not just any person. He is one of the three co-equal, co-eternal persons of the Godhead. So He is God, the Holy Spirit. We must fix our minds on the truth of what Scripture has to say about the Spirit. Otherwise, we get sidetracked and we end up imagining things that may not be true, sometimes even before we even realize it. Now, I mention all of that because in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26, Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit and His presence with us. The presence of God among all of His people at all times and in every circumstance, is at the heart of the promises that he gives to his people to comfort them in the present sinful world. Jesus tells his disciples that when he leaves, they're going to be brought into union with the Trinity through the work of the Holy Spirit. But now what does that look like? Is it just a fuzzy feeling that we get inside of ourselves? Is it a physical appearance? How does this presence happen? Do we feel it? Or is it more objective than that? 
Jesus does not encourage his people. He does not comfort his disciples with mere possibilities or external conditions or with personal feelings and fickle emotions. That's not a solid place to set your feet. Jesus encourages his people here in the darkest moment of their lives with truth that is solid and objective. It is not something that has to be conjured up by man's strength or ingenuity. Jesus tells his people, you are never separated from the presence of Christ, from the presence of God. You are never separated from the Father, not from the Son, not from the Holy Spirit, and it isn't something you have to create in your own life. It is something God does for you as a gift in your salvation, and it never stops. So we need to understand that if we are true believers in Christ, then we have the Spirit of God already dwelling in us. That is the promise that Jesus makes to all of his disciples in every generation, including you and me today. And that promise has several applications or implications to it, several aspects where it touches the reality of our lives right here and right now. And we're going to get to those in a moment, but I want us to stop for a moment at verse 15. This passage that we're looking at today begins with verse 15. And verse 15 says, these are Jesus' words, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that doesn't seem to fit here, does it? In a conversation about the Holy Spirit, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, certainly we could make it fit somewhere in this chapter, but here closely attached to this discussion of the Holy Spirit? Why? I think part of the reason that this verse is here, and Jesus includes it here, is that it shows us to whom these promises are given. Who are the ones who receive this promise of the Holy Spirit? All those promises in verses 1 to 14 about constant provision and doing these greater things than Jesus did and all this this advancing of his ministry than for him to promise peace in this present world. Who is that for? He makes this promise to those who love him and who keep his commandments. Simply put, he's talking about true Christians. The people who follow him. This is not a blanket promise to everybody in the world. This is a promise to his children. It's a common theme throughout the writings of John. In his gospel here and in his epistles later in the New Testament, John teaches that a true Christian is one whose life is centered on loving and obeying Christ. That he is one whose life will produce the fruit that is in accord with Scripture's commands and with the character of Christ. So he he says that here in verse 15, but then he says it down in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And again in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word 
He says it in the negative in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then Jesus will set himself up as the example of this in the next chapter in John 15, verse 10, when he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then moving on in the New Testament to the epistles of John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, we read, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And again, in John 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And we could go on and on with more verses that teach us this very thing. This is a constant theme, love and obedience. A love that demonstrates itself in eagerness to obey and an obedience that is rooted in love for God. This is what a true child of God looks like. That means mere knowledge of spiritual facts is not enough. Just knowing about Jesus or believing certain things to be true is not enough. A true Christian is a child of God and is one who loves him and who obeys him and whose life is oriented toward following him. Now, this is a work that only the Holy Spirit can produce in someone's life. Apart from that, it's just external effort. But it is the Holy Spirit who leads his people to this kind of conformity to Christ, to this kind of relationship. So let me just pause here and ask this question. Are you a true Christian? Are you a true Christian? I'm not asking what you know about Christ. I'm not asking what you think about Jesus. I'm not even asking how you feel about him. I am asking whether you truly follow Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. You may be able to say all manner of lofty things and true things about Jesus. Judas did that too. And Peter, even in chapter 13 right here, makes the same, a, a very similar lofty commitment to Christ. I will lay down my life for you. And what do we find out really happens to the life of Peter? He said, no. You didn't lay down your life for me. You laid down your testimony at the feet of a little girl. He had the knowledge up here. But it hadn't, hadn't gripped him yet. It would. Man, look at Peter in the book of Acts. What a powerful leader he was. Where did that come from? It wasn't his knowledge. His knowledge failed him. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that came in and worked through him. What about you? Where do you stand with Jesus today? Are you a true Christian? Here is where the rubber meets the road for all of us. A true Christian is one whose eyes and heart are on Jesus Christ, following him as Savior and Lord, loving him, submitting to him, 
and is more and more forsaking the sinful way of life and has turned to obedience to Christ. Yes, we mess up. Nobody here would claim that we obey Christ perfectly. You know that. I know that. Let's just get that out on the table. And we sin far too often, don't we? But our lives as true Christians ought to be progressing, right? Moving toward Christ-likeness, growing in grace with one another, oriented toward Christ, looking that way, characterized by love for Christ, demonstrated in growing obedience to Christ. So my friends, let's examine our hearts today. And let's examine our hearts often to see if we are truly in the faith. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. But the New Testament makes clear that saving faith works. And all of this is empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So in verses 16 to 26 then, to all who are in Christ, to those who love Him and who keep His commandments, Jesus gives three promises. He promises first the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to look at the other two next week. Jesus promises the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That will lead, secondly, to union with Christ. And thirdly, love of the Father. And those three descriptive words, indwelling and union and love or fellowship with the Father, those could be used interchangeably. And the point is this, Jesus promises the presence of God to his people. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. To all who are his children at all times, in every circumstance, forever, whether we feel it or not. And that presence and what Jesus promises right here is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of every Christian. So let's talk about that first category, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're going to cover that today, and then we're going to put the rest till next week. We see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in verses 16 and 17, and then down in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. It's an important reference to the Trinity. Jesus, the Son, will ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit or the Helper to be with His people forever. But look at the word that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit here. Helper. Helper. What does He mean by that? Well, in the Greek language, the word that is used is paraclete. What is a paraclete? You don't know what that some of you might know because that has translated over somewhat into uh, our English language. But the idea of this word is one who is called alongside, one who comes alongside someone else. And what are they called alongside for? Whatever that person might need. So they're called alongside to be a mediator or an intercessor or a counselor, or a comforter, or an encourager, or a teacher, and the list could go on. Well, which one is it for the Holy Spirit? 
It's all of them. Some translations have used the word comforter for the Holy Spirit here, and that certainly is part of it, but that's not the whole idea. That's just a piece of it. But notice what else Jesus says about the Holy Spirit here. He doesn't say, I will send you the helper. He says, I will send you another helper. Wait a minute. That means they had one already. Well, who is that? Well, that would be Jesus. Now, again, we have to be careful with our language here. In English, when we use the word another, we don't know exactly what it means except by context. Right? Here's what I mean. Jump over to the Greek language. You know the Greek language, right? There are two words for another. The first word for another is a word that means another of a different kind. It's the word heteros. Hetero, meaning different, right? Another of another kind, of a different kind. So Paul uses this word in Galatians when he warns against another gospel creeping in. You have received the gospel. Now avoid anything that does not line up with that because it is another gospel. It is something different. That's not the word that is used here. The word that is used here is alas, which means another of the same kind. See, we have one word for that in English, and context determines which of these two definitions it has, right? But in Greek, this means another of the same kind. In other words, Jesus says to his disciples, when I leave, I am going to ask the Father, and he is going to send a helper like I am. That helps us to see what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in the lives of his people. Doesn't it? In John chapter 15, verse 26, we're told that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness about Jesus. So the ministry of the Spirit then is to continue doing in the lives of God's people what Jesus began to do in them. Well, what was the ministry of Jesus in the lives of his disciples? Well, for them, Jesus had been the source of truth. He had been their source of stability. He had been their encouragement. He had even been their protection. And he had provided for his disciples. And he prayed for them. And he comforted them. And he rebuked them. And he taught them. And he warned them. And he led them. And he cared for them. Look at the ministry of Jesus and the relationship he had with his disciples you'll get a good picture of what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in your life. And as you trace the work and the effect of the Holy Spirit through the New Testament, you'll find that's exactly what He does. He is our teacher. He is our advocate before the Father's throne. He is our intercessor and comforter. He is our guide and our leader and so much more. We'll develop that more as we work through this passage together. But notice that Jesus tells them that this Holy Spirit will be with them forever. Unlike Jesus, who was there physically with them for three years and then gone, when this Holy Spirit comes, he isn't leaving. He will be with you forever. And so Jesus even says over in chapter 16, verse 7 to his disciples, it is actually to your advantage that I go away. 
You're sad because I'm leaving, but understand this. It is to your advantage. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. With the Holy Spirit's arrival and the indwelling of his people, the presence of God among the saints is actually expanded from what it had been with the 12 disciples. God's presence is no longer just around us or at the altar where the lamb is being slain. God's presence is in us and among us. And that promise, that presence is no longer temporary. It is permanent. Beloved, you're in Christ. There is nowhere you go where you are outside of the presence of the Holy Spirit living in you and guiding you every step of your life. Now let's move on to verse 17 and notice that Jesus refers to this Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. We already know that God is truth. And Jesus said back in 14.6 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And now he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. What does that mean? It means that he's God who is the author of truth. It means that he is the revealer of truth and he is the teacher of truth to his people. And specifically in this context, Jesus is referring to the Spirit's work of bringing all things to the apostles' remembrance so that they can spread the gospel around the world and so that they can pen scripture. And so he says in verses 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There's no way these disciples were going to remember every moment they had with Jesus, much less be able to write it down in detail. But he says the Spirit will bring it to your remembrance, and when you pen it, it will be his word. It will be the word of God revealed through you. So when Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's sort of what he's talking about here. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that all Scripture has been given to us by the moving of the Holy Spirit in the writers to remember and record what God had taught through the life of Christ. And then going back into the Old Testament, even as God had revealed it to the prophets and so on throughout Israel's history. So we have a God who is true, and we have Christ who is the truth, and we have the Holy Spirit who is true and who is the revealer of God's truth to the hearts of men. And those men, those disciples, wrote down the truth of God and passed it on to every generation. Why did they write it down? Because somebody was going to read it. And who reads it? You and I do. And if we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit working in us as it worked in them, not to write new scripture, but to understand what he has revealed and what he has given to us. So this promise of the Spirit's working and revealing truth applies to us as it did to them. That's why we believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. We could say so much more there. But I want us to understand this. What we need today is not more revelation. We need to understand what God has given. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He opens our eyes. He opens our hearts to understand what God has revealed and then to live it in our lives. But without the Holy Spirit, none of this works. You can be a scholar of Scripture, as so many unbelievers are, and yet not understand what it's really teaching us. The Apostle Paul taught us that. In fact, he said that this all is foolishness to those who don't have the Spirit working in them. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We're lost. We're blind. We're driving through a fog as we study Scripture unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. What is His ministry to you? To open your eyes to the Word of God, to point you to the Son of God, so that you can be reconciled to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can live a life for Him. So back in verse 17, Jesus says, The world cannot receive Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. And this is true as we look at our world today, right? Our world understands that there are problems, that this world isn't working the way it's supposed to, and yet every solution we come up with seems to only make it worse. Why? Because without the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the words of God, we're just a bunch of fools. We can't figure it out. Smart as we might be. Now, in contrast to the the world, however, Jesus continues in verse 17 and says, You know him. The world doesn't know him. The world doesn't know this helper, this comforter. You know him. And he's saying this to people who had yet to really experience what happened at Pentecost. They don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus says, You know him, for he dwells with you. How did that happen? Jesus had been with them. But he doesn't just say here that he dwells with you. He says he will be in you. This is a greater manifestation of this that comes in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Spirit comes and fills his people and, and moves them out to spread the gospel around the world. And again, we see now this presence of the Holy Spirit is not just around us, it is in us opening our eyes to the truth of Scripture, giving us spiritual discernment in this world, and ultimately revealing Jesus Christ so that we might know Him and love Him and imitate Him. Well, that sets us up for the rest of the passage. What you've heard this morning is unusual for me. It's a one-point sermon. All sermons are a one-point sermon, but in terms of my outline, one point today. We're talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to build off of that, Lord willing, next week and see where Jesus the Son and God the Father fit into this ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we've seen so far. To all who love Christ and keep his commandments, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to be our helper. The Holy Spirit's role is to do for us what Christ did for his disciples during his earthly ministry, to teach and guide and lead and direct, and comfort, and assist, and pray for, and so much more. He is the Spirit of truth who gives us the truth of God and guides us to understand the truth of God so that we will live by the truth of God. 
Without the Holy Spirit, we're blind and ignorant, helpless, foolish. But with the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need for life and godliness through the Spirit opening our eyes to the Word of God. And in the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, in Christ, we have what we need to live godly and faithful and steady lives in Christ. And furthermore, we have union with God. We have fellowship with Christ. So what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be at work in a believer's life? I wish I could hold up a big mirror because it looks like this. It's nothing spectacular. I am so glad that I do not have to try to work you up into a frenzy every week because you see my personality. I can't do it. It's not showy miracles. I'm not going to raise anybody from the dead up here. I'm not even going to heal your hip. What does the work of the Spirit look like in the life of a believer? It looks like love for Christ. It looks like repentance from sin and growth in godliness. It looks like an understanding of Scripture and obedience and spiritual maturity, faithfulness and steadfastness, and it looks like perseverance through trials. It looks like a church family that loves one another and cares for, a one, for one another and uses whatever gifts they have to be a blessing to one another. That's why I say it looks like this. So if you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is in you. And you are enabled to be and do everything that he has called you to be and do. So Christian, be encouraged today. Take heart today, Christian. You are not alone. You are not forsaken. And you are not in over your Lord's head. You may be in it over yours, but you are not in over His. Not with the Holy Spirit at work in you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you've never come to this point of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand today that if you are not in Christ, you don't have the comfort of the Holy Spirit like this working in you. You're on your own. You're left to navigate this broken world by your own wits. And friend, that is not going to work out well for you. We learned it this morning. Those who aren't in Christ, where do they go? They are, they are cast out of the presence of the Lord into a place called hell. And it is a real place. And it is a place of suffering and torment that, was, that, that is designed for those who don't know, know Christ. For the devil and his angels and everlasting punishment. How can you be saved? How can you be rescued? How can you be made right with God? It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through repenting of your sin and your self-confidence, turning to Christ alone in faith, crying out to Him for mercy and for salvation. And He is a great Savior. And the Holy Spirit is more than enough for what you need. And He will give when you ask. Why not today? What are you waiting for? There is no greater Savior. He's it, and He's all you need. And in Him, by the Holy Spirit, you will be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.